Thanks, Jenna. Hi, and welcome to the program. My name is Georgia Critsley. I am a member of the Civil Rights and Civil Liberty Steering Committee at the BBA and a past chair of the Criminal Justice Steering Committee. I am very pleased to welcome Susan Mays Rothstein and Janet Connors for today's program. Susan is the co-director of Suffolk University's Center for Restorative Justice. Before coming to Suffolk in 2019, she was a professor at Northeastern School of Law for more than 20 years and served as the director of legal skills and social context for the social justice program. She also chaired the Restorative Justice Coalition of Massachusetts, where she was instrumental in the enactment of the Commonwealth's first restorative justice statute. The rest of her impressive bio is available on the Boston Bar Association website page for this event. And we also have Janet Connors. Janet is a restorative justice practitioner who does survivor support work with survivors of homicide victims at the Lewis Brown Peace Institute and the Center for Violence and Recovery at Beth Israel and through Le Legacy Lives On. She's a circle keeper in juvenile justice for the RISE Federal Court Program and also in prisons, as well as many grassroots community settings. And you can read the rest of her also very impressive bio on the BBA website page for this event. So we're gonna start with Susan. Um, Susan, can you tell us uh, first as an academic, what is the philosophy behind restorative justice? Uh, yes, I, I um, can talk with you about that. It's First, I wanna say thank you to the Boston Bar Association and to you, Georgia, um, for all the work that went into putting together tonight's webinar or today's webinar. Um, uh, as to the philosophy of restorative justice, there, there is a, a recent publication by Fania Davis um, that gives us a very, um, I think, cogent and coherent definition of restorative justice that I'd like to share um, on the screen for a moment. Let me try to bring it up. One second. And um, it comes from, uh, as you might know, Fania Davis is the uh, sister of Angela Davis. Um, who is a law professor in California. Let me just slip this uh, display setting. And, um, and she has written a book, which I would say in this day and age ought to be required reading for all um, uh, people, but um, lawyers in particular. It's called The Little Book of Race and Restorative Justice. It's part of a series of little books on restorative justice. But this is one of the very strong books. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, and out of that book comes a definition that I think uh, sort of helps us to look at the entire movement of restorative justice, which has taken place uh, in the United States most recently, starting in about the uh, 1980s in response to. Um, mass incarceration in the United States. Uh, the, the definition, in case it's hard for anybody to see, reads consonant with African and other indigenous communitarian values. Restorative justice is profoundly relational and emphasizes bringing together everyone affected by wrongdoing 
to address needs and responsibilities and to heal harm to relationships and community to the degree possible. While often mistakenly considered only a reactive response to harm, restorative justice is also a proactive relational strategy to create a culture of connectivity where all members of a community thrive and feel valued. What I love about this particular uh, definition um, is that it actually both addresses the, the part of restorative justice, which has been attractive to us Western folks, which is as a response to harm. Um, and it also uh, addresses the more deeply rooted indigenous roots of the work, which is building and maintaining community. Um, restorative justice is important for both because you actually want to have something uh, more just that you are restoring to. You don't want to just restore to the status quo. The status quo for us as lawyers, as we know, is uh, a model of rule-based law. Um, and that on, when looking at um, criminal issues uh, or what we categorize as criminal, um, taken from, for example, uh, Hart and the aims of criminal law. Um, and um, it's uh, a 1958 seminal document that uh, was written is and also can be found in a criminal law anthology in 1992 by uh, A. Lowry. The core justifications for our Western uh, criminal legal system are um, rehabilitation, disablement, uh, sharpening a community sense of right and wrong, retribution, um, and social vengeance uh, with the concept of crime reduction by way of deterrence. Now, uh, the extent to which that is effective as a way of governing um, society is uh, open to question. But what is actually quite clear from the indigenous origins of this work is that indigenous communities maintained their uh, relational well-being always minus a prison industrial system. So, um, so whether we actually need to approach how we approach third partying um, our ideas of justice uh, is quite open to question. Um, so that's a little bit about the philosophy of restorative justice. You mentioned that the two of the core justifications according to that document are social vengeance and retribution. Um, can you tell the attendees how a restorative justice approach is different? Uh, sure, let me, that takes me to a second slide that I have. <laughs> I planned that. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect timing. <laughs> let me just pull up this second slide. And if I can do that right. So um, if you think about the conventional approach to uh, harm or within, within our community, um, the questions that we ask are what rule was broken, who did it, and how much punishment should we meet out? 
those are the central questions of our criminal legal system. Um, as you know, as members of the bar, uh, we need to know enough about that by way of criminal codes to be able to pass the bar. So what is the meaning of how much punishment, et cetera, is a big deal for us. Restorative justice has three completely different sets of questions that are being asked. Who has been affected by and who has been hurt? What are their needs? And who is obliged to meet those needs? And in what ways? Um, as you can see, that is a focus. The focus that we have in our Western conventional approach is one of um, separating people out and harming them. In fact, uh, you know, a good portion of our tax dollars uh, go to the notion of third partying this conflated idea of justice with punishment so that we are doing state-sponsored violence in people's lives. That is what we do. That's our criminal legal system. Restorative justice approach is actually looking at, there's been a tear in the social fabric what do we need to do to repair that tear? And as Fania Davis points out, to the degree possible, you can never make harm as though it did not take place, but you can do work um, to, to improve what has happened and to repair what has happened and to repair the relationships among people so that there is a, a return to community. Um, our Western approach actually provides no actual route to return to community. And, um, and that's part of why we have our high levels of recidivism, I would submit. Um, so that's a little bit about how the two approaches differ. Susan, can you, there is a, um... I think a, a view out there maybe that restorative justice kind of uh, takes it easy on someone who's done harm to someone else. And other people who uh, practice restorative justice say it's actually a heavy accountability model. So can you talk a little bit about how there actually is accountability for someone who's done harm in a restorative justice approach? Sure. First, there are two things. Um, our concept of accountability is one of policing. We hold others accountable, right? Um, holding others accountable is from the outside in. So it's a coercive measure. Um, and there's no actual requirement that the person hold themselves accountable. Um, you can sit in a entire court process and never say a word, which is absolutely necessary with our ideas of due process because we have the massive resources of the state pitted against the individual. So if you're going to have a model like that, you have to protect the individual. But um, does that equate with actual accountability? Um, not really. Does punishment or putting people in cages 
and punishing them for years actually equate with true accountability? Probably not, because you don't have any way of knowing whether there's anything changed about the individual that you put in the cage. If you're going to repair harm, um, the centerpiece of restorative justice is volition, that you act out of your own volition. That is, you participate in the practices from your inside out, you want to be there. And then when you look to uh, repair harm, there is the need to uh, acknowledge some measure of responsibility. In our Western system, there is actually no responsibility for taking responsibility. Uh, if you do that, um, then you are going to be punished. <laughs> so, so because punishment is hanging out there, um, we most people uh, don't actually take responsibility. Uh, it is hard to take responsibility. It is not easy. And, uh, and in doing that, to try to figure out together with others, well, how do I actually make things any better? That's hard. That's work. Um, that's a real form of accountability because it's from the inside of you out. It's not being imposed from outside. So, um, yeah, that's my view on that. Okay, and are, are there, is there research um, on the benefits of using a restorative justice approach? Um, yeah, there's, there is, uh, there is research. Um, the, the challenge of research, you know, we uh, as a society are now, our new darling is data, <laughs> right? Because we have the internet and we can crunch a lot of information through the internet, um, we're all about data. Um, we're particularly all about data for things that are not centrist within the society. I would love it if uh, the criminal legal system had to prove its efficacy by data each and every year that it was going to get funded. Um, but in fact, that's not what we do. And in fact, the criminal legal system would fail if it was asked to do that in order to get its funding um, in many ways. So uh, the, the sort of uh, instruments we have for measuring are rather blunt. Um, you know, they're, they're limited to recidivism and, uh, and issues like that. They don't measure change of heart. They don't measure quality of character and shifts in character. Um, they fall short of those things. But just yesterday, I was uh, at, on the phone with um, a program for juvenile detention in Washington, D.C. Um, called New Beginnings. Um, New Beginnings used to be called Oak Hill in um, Washington, DC. It was under a 30, 20 something year consent decree because of how bad it was for young people. And, um, and so they have in the last three to five years been working in restorative justice and they have transformed their entire program of juvenile detention into a restorative justice model 
And we were talking yesterday about their numbers. And, um, and they said, well, uh, they certainly have been able to measure that there is less uh, juvenile or youth on staff violence. There is less youth on youth violence. And there is less youth on youth repeated violence. That is keeping a fight going. Interestingly, they did not give me the figures on staff on youth violence. <laughs> and so, um, you know, it, to me, it just goes to show uh, what do we measure and why do we measure it, you know? Um, but having said that, all of those figures were quite strong. They are, were remarkably strong and the court thought they were so strong that they took the new beginnings off of the consent decree and it is now clear sailing on its own. Um, and they have a very deep and rich uh, reentry model that starts at the moment of, um, of uh, arrival. Great, thank you. I wanna turn now to, uh, to Janet. Uh, Janet, can you tell the attendees, how did you become involved in restorative justice? Jenna, I think you're on mute. I actually knew about restorative justice back in the 70s, but, um, and did some work with it. Uh, but mostly um, it kind of went on a back burner for me. And um, January of 2001, my then 19 year old son, Joel was murdered. Um, so, and I had always worked with kids and families all my life, um, mostly in Dorchester, Roxbury and Mattapan. I've lived in Dorchester all my life. Um, I, I worked for 19 years on Bowdoin Street, actually. And um, so, so I saw a lot of young people grow up and do good things, but I saw a lot of young people go in and out of lockup, um, knowing it wasn't really doing any good. And, and I went to many funerals of young people in programs because I worked there during the 80s and 90s. I never thought I'd be going to my own son's funeral. Um, and I had to ask myself, what is justice going to mean to me? Um, I wasn't and didn't have a, a lot of faith in, in the criminal legal system or, um, in, in many ways already. And um, and yet I did want them held accountable and I knew that they were going to have to serve some time in prison. And, um, and that was okay with me. I, I, I did, I did enough prison work to know that sometimes people need a break to be out of the fray, but it's not, but, but prison could be houses of healing, um, to put it in the words of, of Robin Kostagian, um, rather than, um, cages as soon to. I, um, I had to ask myself, though, as someone who worked with children and families all my life, where have we failed that our young people, that they get to the point where they're killing one another? Where have we, as parents, as neighbors, as educators, as social workers, as law enforcement, as, you know, coaches, as all of our, all of us who interact with our children, where have we failed them that they can get to this point? That was like my restorative justice question. 
So there were four people in, um, arrested. I was not happy with outcomes. Um, the, the young man who actually killed Joel beat his case. And um, sorry. And uh, one, one of them is serving 25 to life. He pleaded guilty to murder in the second degree. Two of them made plea arrangements and pleaded guilty to manslaughter and was serving eight to 10 and 10 to 12. So those two young men, I felt like they're coming back to community. And if they keep doing the same dirt they were doing before, they're gonna dump it back on us by quote. So, so I wanted to meet with them at um, in what's called a victim offender dialogue. I like to call it a restorative dialogue. At the time I was working at the Lewis Brown Peace Institute, I work in partnership with them some now, but I don't work at this institute anymore. So I, I knew the victim service person and I just kept bothering her. And um, finally we wrote a letter. It was Kathleen Dennehy at the time. So I had the first victim offender dialogue or restorative dialogue in Massachusetts through the DOC. Um, I asked the young man to make, um, I met with them a couple of different times and both of them have at one point or another stood on my son's grave with me. And I asked them to um, do what they need to do to stay sober and keep working their programs to get a job, earn an honest living. Talk to young people around the way about their mistakes and also to um, just cause no more harm to self, family and community. So one of them in particular, um, still has kept to those agreements after it's been 20 years and he's kept to those agreements. He sometimes speaks with me. Um, the other one kept his agreements for quite some time, but he got back in the game. I like to think of him as harm reduction, but really what was important for was for the way it transformed me. Um, so anyway, I just, I just decided that um, I was going to do this work that, and I, I just kept putting one foot in front of the other. And, um, and, and finally built myself a reputation um, as a restorative justice practitioner and trainer. I do trainings with the Center for Restorative Justice um, that Susan works for. And um, I've done work in schools and in juvenile justice, as you said, in, and in the federal court program, the RISE program, and, and in community work with them. Um, with survivors of homicide victims. So we brought two mothers together. We brought the mother of the young person who was killed um, together with the mother of the young person who killed the other. And, um, and so we've done, so in community settings, it's outside of, of, of uh, the legal system and law enforcement um, completely, but it's a healing kind of a justice um, that we do in community. And I, I wrote in my journals before the arrests were made, I wrote in my journal, who are these monsters? Because my son was stabbed in his heart. His heart was ripped open. And um, I asked in my journal, who are these monsters? And then a, a few days later, I went back into my journal and I said, no, we're not looking for monsters. If I think of them as monsters, I let them off the hook. It's when I hold them in their humanity that I hold them accountable. And um, to, to the point that you asked, uh, it's like punishment is imposed. It comes down upon you. 
somebody else decides decides that you're not invested in it at all. Accountability it rises up from within. It it comes from the heart and soul. And so um, so yeah. So I just keep walking and um, taking the steps every day and doing um, my work, which I I carry my son with me. Um, and there with me as we do it. And uh, that's how I got, that's how that really started in doing the social justice work. Could you walk us through, so I know you became a circle keeper. Um, could you <coughs> walk us through how a circle works to, um, to, uh, to address harm when harm has been done to someone? Mm -hmm. So in this circle, as um, Susan talked about coming from indigenous practices, um, but, you know, I, I come from a, um, a mixed European background, but largely identify as Irish American. And so even in, in ancient Celtic times, circles were used. Um, and, and there's a Celtic medicine wheel too. So we follow the medicine wheel um, that was taught to us by, by native people. Um, but it's similar to, to what medicine wheels are like, those life wheels are like um, across the globe um, in indigenous cultures. With a first, so if you translate it into a modern day um, methodology, you know, the medicine wheel is divided into four quarters, which stand for a lot of things, the, the, the east, the directions, the elements of the earth, the seasons, a lot of things. But in a, terms of a modern day methodology, it is in the first quarter, we're looking at um, introductions and getting to know people. And in the second quarter, we're looking more at like deepening that trust and relationship building. And in the third quarter, we're looking for identifying um, the concerns. And in the fourth quarter, it's seeking solutions. So even in a circle, we go through all of those things where may ask, we may start out, we'll start out with a check-in round. We always have an opening and a closing. Um, that's usually some kind of a quote. Um, we may do a, a round on values and what values do you want to guide us through this process and why. And, and so moving through those um, all four of those stages so that we're not just like, what's the problem and how are we going to fix it? Um, I think one of the things that we skip a lot in our society is those first two quadrants. And those are the quadrants that are about relationship building. And in fact, one of the reasons why I like the idea of doing this in community too, and why it's and good to do in schools and, and, has, and is also done in, in a lot of the MCI prisons right now, is that it, you can have a circle to just do that, to just build um, trust and relationships um, so that when harm does cause, people are already in good relationship with one another. And, and even in prisons, people can be in good relationship with one another. And it's, and it's especially important that they are actually and there's been some great restorative justice initiatives um, that have come from both survivors of homicide victims coming in and from, from the men and women in, in um, MCI prison facilities. So um, I, think I, I think I answered your question, right? Yes. <laughs> 
um, so we have just a couple minutes left in this part of the program, and I'm just going to remind everyone, and I see there are a few questions in the Q&A, we're going to move to another part, the second half of the program. But before we do, Janet, I just want to ask you, um, and I didn't, I, we didn't discuss this question, but from your perspective, could you briefly, if possible, describe um, through your work, have you seen real change? Yes. Yes, I, I have definitely seen real change. Um, in the RISE program, you know, we're, we're talking about people who, for the most part, are, you know, charged with conspiracy to distribute fentanyl, heroin, and cocaine, um, or gun running, or money laundering kind of things. Um, we talk a lot there about um, there are, you know, the idea that there really aren't very many really victimless crimes. So that if you follow that bag of dope, if you follow that cachet gun, you know, as it goes through communities, how many people get hurt? How many people get maimed? How many people get killed? How many people get arrested? How many people get deported? How many people get addicted? How many people die of overdoses? How many suffer from all of that? And so I've heard, I've seen in the RISE program, people say, I never thought of that. And then from there, they decide, are they going to have a restorative justice process with somebody that they cause harm to. Um, so I have seen it transform. I've seen, and, and young students, I've seen it transform to, you know, having some of the kids who were causing most of the trouble or a lot of the trouble all the time become then student leaders and mentor other students. Um, language starts to change. People start to realize that they don't want the same kind of life that they had before. And um, the idea to, for them to sit in circle and, and know that someone is, that people are now saying to them, you are a valued member and we want you to be a valued member of our of community, whatever community you live, for, live in and are, are from or identify with. We want you to be a valued member. We believe you have a good self, a core self that is, is wise and powerful and that you can stray from that good self, and many of us have, but you can always choose to go back to that good self. And so, and I've seen that kind of transformation in people. I've seen it in men in prison. I've seen it in students in school. I've seen it in juvenile justice work. I've seen it in community where, like the example of the two mothers, where people were threatening to hurt one another um, and harm one another, and then they, they come and they are hugging. I've seen it um, in, in gang in the Circle Up program, that the Circle Up documentary. There's, um, you know, a story about some uh, a gang intervention um, where and, and working with some young men over a year and a half in Circle, myself and other survivors of homicide victims, and and how it changed them. Um, so, yes, I've seen transformation. And the thing is. For, for those of us as survivors of homicide victims, when we participate in these programs, in the RISE program, there are survivors of homicide victims who come in. There are survivors of, of, of people who have lost their children to um, ODs. And so um, it really, it's a healing process for us too, which is one of the beauties of restorative justice is, is that it, it really is a much greater sense of satisfaction for everybody involved. Everybody involved in a much more meaningful um, way of addressing harm. 
I think that is the perfect place to briefly stop and shift over to the second part of our program. Uh, everyone who is attending, you'll see that there is a link in the chat, a Zoom link. Please note that there's also a passcode. So you can cut and you can copy the passcode and then cut and paste, I'm sorry, and then click on the Zoom link. And we're gonna move into a different virtual space for our Q and A. Um, and that will go until four. So hope we're trying something new. Hopefully this works. So uh, we can all just click on that and enter the passcode. So I'll see everyone in our part two.